Hey there, and welcome to episode 17 of the Beneath the Stats podcast, produced by Wicked Local North Boston. I'm your host, Farrell McKittrick. Joining me today is the amazing magician from America's Got Talent, Michael John. Michael, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Robbie. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, as I said, Michael John is a magician who is well known for his appearances on America's Got Talent. He's also an actor and a model. His online videos are wildly successful and have logged over 50 million views in total. Now, Michael, I wanted to start the interview by discussing how you first got into magic in the first place. I know in a prior interview, you said about magic that, quote, something compelled me to learn the mechanics and how this ability to amaze and enchant were accomplished. It was like an instinct. We explain what first drew you to learning magic when you were young. I know you were young when you first started it. We explain how you got into it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so it's a couple things play into it. When I was about seven, seven or eight, uh, I had a first communion and I had received a magic kit from from one of my aunts who has you know since passed. But um, it was like one of those magic science kits. I think it was called a bunch of like little plastic gizmos and you know, uh, basically principles in magic that overlap into science. And uh, that's kind of how I started. But also from my father, who used to sh- show me these little these little tricks with like dollar bills and stuff that are uh, that at the time when I was a kid were, were pretty amazing. And as I got older and got more into it, I, you know, I learned how how basic they were. But at the same time, I think my father played into it as well because he, he was he's a teacher or was a teacher. So he retired, uh, but he he taught high school. U.S. history, and he was up in front of a class every day presenting, and he's also a baseball coach. So he's done a lot of presenting and, and being in front of an audience and uh, it, it both in both baseball and in the classroom. And I think that that played into it, into me getting into magic, him showing me little things like, you know, can you find the key on the dollar bill and folding it a couple of times and it's turned over magically and those kind of things. And, and I just never really stopped from there, you know. What was it about magic, do you think, that drew you to it? Obviously, your dad showed you some tricks and some things. What was it about it? Was it the presentation of being in front of an audience? Was it creating something new? Well, yeah, what was it specifically? Uh, if it wasn't about being in front of an audience at first, because I didn't even know what that what that felt like. It was it was right. the, the feeling of seeing something absolutely impossible that I could not wrap my brain around how it was done and it, it didn't feel like a puzzle or anything it was like this mystery like this this sense of wonder like there's just no way that this is possible you know in our world and and it, there's something about that just really compelled me to go after it and learn more you know learn more about how how these things were, were accomplished um yeah I, I can't really explain i guess in too much detail, you know, what compels somebody to, to be interested in one thing and then not another, you know, every person's so different, but, but something about it just really drew me to it. And I, I'd say that maybe it was something I was just kind of inherently born with that, with that, uh, with that interest. You know, I feel like it found me almost in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah. And at what age did you really start to get going with it and start to create your own tricks or progress further into thinking it might be even a career? Uh, so it went in like little in little bursts. Um, I started when I was seven and I just kind of dabbled with, you know, with the little kits and stuff until I was about like 12 or so. We didn't really do it that seriously. Just kind of showed it to my family and I would make like the, the kits would come with these little uh, cardboard uh, little stands that you could make into like a little 
you know, altar to, to perform on. And I would like set up my little magic show on it pretty much and uh, get my family out in the living room and I'd have like a top hat and all this stuff. And I would like make it this big thing and I would perform when I was that age, I didn't even practice. I would just like read the instructions immediately, like have to show my family members like my brother or something. And then he would immediately figure it out because I didn't practice <laughs> it. And then I'd be like upset at him for like figuring out the trick when I just didn't like understand that it takes time <laughs> to practice and learn these things. But uh, so when, when I was about 12 or 13, rather, uh, that's when I started getting more serious about it. I saw this magician at my uncle's birthday party do a couple of tricks for me and our fam- my, my little cousins and stuff at this party. And uh, I went home obsessed with what he one of these things he had shown me. And I had to just I had to know how it was done. And I'm sure, you know, the other cousins and, and family members that were around me that saw the magic tricks that he performed, it, it impressed them too, but they didn't really, after that, they kind of, you know, a couple hours later, they kind of forgot about it. And I just was like for days and weeks, just obsessed. Like I couldn't stop thinking about like what he had shown me. So I went online on the internet back then. This is back in when I was 13. Geez, I don't know what year that was. I can't do the math right now, but it was a lot. I'm 30 now. So it was a while ago. And uh, so the internet was like just starting. It was like, you know, the dial up and everything. And I remember jumping on and I had no idea how I was going to find what I want, what I was searching for these secrets, but I just would type into Google, you know, whatever keywords I could think of that might lead me to it. And then believe it or not, eventually I did find the trick that he showed me. And I, you know, I think I mowed the lawn for my dad or something to get the money to, to get these tricks. And, uh, so then when I was, when I was about 13, that's when I started getting more serious about it. Um, because I was, I was learning magic and seeing magic that wasn't in these, these magic science kits. This was like more serious. It just felt like better magic. I was like, well, shit, like this is, you know, there's better stuff out there. Like this is crazy. And then David Blaine's street magic special came out around that same time when I was that age. And I saw that on TV and then that really made me, you know, just want to burn my house down and like, you know. Yeah. And I think one thing I'm fascinated with is the magic tricks themselves and how magicians create their own. How do you go about learning your new tricks? When did you start creating your own magic tricks versus looking at a book? You said you really started to, to start it at age 13. But as I've seen your set and what you did on America's Got Talent, and it's, it's really amazing. And I'm always fascinated with how magicians create almost like a comedy bit, but it's something like for a magician, their own tricks. Yeah, ma- magic goes back so many thousands of years that um, I don't think personally that there's there's such a thing as, you know, original uh, magic that magicians are inventing that no one else has ever thought of. I think it's more so you, they're remixing it. Right. It's, it's their own spin on it. You know, there's this book that I like called Steal Like an Artist. And in the book, the author talks about about this principle, how nothing is original. And uh, it's more about standing on the shoulders of giants. And, and so I, I don't think that magicians create and invent things as, even though they say that they do, because that sounds so good, you know, I'm, I'm this genius that invents and creates. And, but, but I think it's more of just, they're taking things that they already know, you know, methods, and they're, they're, they're applying it to something else. And, and the word I like to use is remixing. That's what they're doing really. And, uh, I I also think that there's something to be said about being creative in the presentational aspect of it as well, you know, because so many magicians get so focused in and honing on the method and the, the effect itself in in terms of creativity, but I think that applying that to the presentation is just as rewarding, you know, and interesting. 
and thinking about how how can I present this in a way? Because most magicians that that get caught up on the methods and I think in, in being creative in that realm are usually performing for other magicians and trying to fool them. But if your focus is more on the audience, like the layperson that you'd be performing for, like a regular guy, regular people, they don't they don't they don't look at magic the same way. So being creative in your presentation is, I think just as if not more important you know no one ever asks me like who created that trick who invented that when you show magic people just they don't even their mind doesn't even go there they're so amazed by what you did they don't think of like it's not like with music where if you play a song and you're playing a cover song most people that you play for they're going to know that it's you know this is a beatles song or whatever you know the beatles started off as a, as a cover band too you know i don't know it's kind of it's hard to articulate uh i've never really c- created or invented my own material uh and I, and I, I, but I, I put that focus more into the presentation of it and, and how I, and how I make something my own. It's a very interesting point. And I think when anyone's watching magicians, they always assume that it's brand new, but yeah, no. it does seem like creativity and having good presentational skills is really important, which kind of leads to my next question of what do you, is the most important trait to being a good magician? You mentioned creativity, having good presentational skills are things like quick hands or, other factors important as well or what would you say to someone if you're telling them what it's important to make it as a good magician to make it so when you say make it you mean what do you mean by that being a successful magician being able to do it as a full-time career being popular doing a good job on stage however you define it right chris angel said to me once that you know people always think oh when i just make it oh then i'll be you know then i can relax i just got to make it first and he looked at me and he said there is no making it you know, when you make it, you work harder than you've than you've ever had to work before. You know, I can't even see a movie now, kind of thing. Right. Uh, so, so I think, I think in terms of uh, being successful, like you mean in terms of like repeat bookings, that kind of thing, and then like making a career out of it and being able to provide for your family. Right, and even in terms of who you think would be a good magician, from your opinion, what right. do you think are the traits that they would show or, or demonstrate? Well, first of all, I'd say you have to love it. You know, I don't think there's any, I don't think magicians get into it for any other practical reason other than that they love it. You know, you don't think like, oh, I want to be a millionaire. I'm going to be a magician. You know, that you just don't, it's not a, right. not a thing, you know. Uh, I mean, magicians do make that kind of money. There are, there are those guys out there, but uh, it has to come from love, you know, because it's such a difficult, it's such a difficult thing to make a living out of that if you don't love it, you know, it's just not going to work for you because when you do love it, you know, all those hard parts are just a part of, of the process, I think. Um, but I think that the most important thing other than just loving it is you also have to have, I feel, a genuine love of people, you know, because much, so much of magic is just you're, you're performing for people, not at them. And that's a, a mistake a lot of guys make is they, they script their shows and, you know, and they get up in front of audiences and then it just, you know, throws people off and they start to feel like, you know, you can tell that it's canned and, uh, I, I try to think, you know, put my focus on connecting with people and, uh, using magic as a tool to, to connect, to, to, uh, bring people together that maybe normally wouldn't interact with each other, you know, not just with me and, uh, thinking of it more about giving magic as a gift to people, you know, like this sense of wonder, like when you're a child, like I have a 15 month old son right now, and he, he's living in this world of astonishment. Everything is amazing to him. So he doesn't need magic like, it, you know, so when I try to show him something, he doesn't really he's not at that age yet where he really uh, understands, you know, once you get older, you start to learn things about the world and you start putting them in boxes in your brain. And, you you know, uh, things you, you slowly become 
jaded and cynicism, you know, starts to sink in. And then you think you know everything about the world and, and, uh, and how it operates. And then that's when magic is strong, when, you know, it pulls that, that floor out from underneath your mind of everything you think you know about, about the world and your, you know, your mind just goes into free fall. So I think, I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, absolutely. And I don't, I don't want to get too psychological and philosophical, but I was a psychology major in college and I do think that, oh, you were. Okay. Cause I do feel like there's this parallel between psychology and magicians and you, you, I feel like you use similar principles in terms of, you know, selective attention and misdirection. And right. You just talked about why you think people may be interested in magic from a psychological perspective. And for example, for myself, I may be a concrete thinker, but when you see something that goes outside your worldview or perspective and to think, how can that be? It really hits you hard and it's fascinating. And that is interesting. You talked about in terms of why your infant wouldn't be interested in it because he believes everything. Whereas someone who is an adult who thinks it can't happen and that it can, that really provides this amazement. Have you learned anything about people or the human psychology more as you've been doing your career as a magician is there been something that was really struck you and you may have just talked about it then but because i'm really fascinated by psychology and people's reactions to what you do on stage have you have you taken away anything through your years so far as a magician in terms of what you've learned about people and human psychology yeah that's a good question that's a great question actually i've never been asked that before um I think, yes, uh, magic really brings out the best in people. Like, you know, as a magician, you really do see the best sides of people. Uh, but at first, everybody's different. You know, every person's like a snowflake. So you, when you do it long enough, you eventually learn how to, you know, you build these chops where you learn how to kind of read people. So you can, you can tell just in, you know, talking to someone for a little bit, you know, not even a minute, how they might respond to, to what I'm about to do or not. You know, everybody's, everybody's different. Some people like to be the center of attention in a group. If I'm say I'm doing like walk around magic at like a bar or a club or something like that, or, you know, a venue, you, you can tell if there's a person that's paying for the check or they, or they like to be the center of things. And, you know, those can, those people can, can, can be more difficult because then they, they take what I do maybe as more of a challenge uh, and, 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 they don't, they don't look at it, you know, as, as open or they might not receive it as well. And those people, you know, I'd have to uh, maybe show them how something's done and kind of get them on my side to see that, look, this isn't, this isn't me against you. This isn't me trying to make, you know, you look stupid and I'm smart or, you know, this is a puzzle that needs to be solved or I'm better than you. And it's none of that. It's just, look, this is a gift of, of, you know, this is, look at, this is amazing. Isn't this crazy? Like, look at the, you know, like, um, so you, you, you get to, read people over time i guess and so that's one of the biggest things i think i took away over the years from performing magic for people is that at first i think people don't even want to be amazed like you know there's this part of them that like doesn't want to 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 see that but everybody's different though i can't i can't say that as a generalization though because everybody really is different and for the most part i'd say people are really really receptive to what i do um but you you also have to you know be like, be, I don't want to say be likable, but you, you know, you have to treat people the way you want to be treated when you're out there and you're, and you're doing your thing. And, and, you know, in my experience anyway, most people have been really receptive and, and positive about it, but there are, you know, there are instances where people aren't, aren't that way. And uh, you definitely learn a lot about people performing magic because it's such a sensitive thing. You know, it's very rare 
that, to, that a person even sees a magician, you know, in everyday life. Like if I was to go around right now, you know, in New York and go up to somebody and about to show them a trick, I usually ask people, and you know, have you ever seen a magician in person before? And most people always say, no, never, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that's what I would, what I would, what I would say is magic brings out the best in people. And, and sometimes I've had someone who, you know, was fighting me at first. It was the heckler and was giving me a hard time or telling other people, oh, I know how it's done and this and that. And, you know, those are people that you, you, when you do it long enough, you see that it's just insecurities or jealousy or whatever, and it comes out in different ways. And, and when you become, you know, emotionally aware enough, like uh, emotionally intelligent enough, I mean, or self-aware, you, you can, you can see that in people. And, you know, if you have the right tools, you know, how to, how to deal with them in the, you know, in a mature way where you eventually get them on your side, where then they're the ones giving you a hug and a high five and buying your beer, where in the beginning they wanted nothing to do with it. You know, do you think your ability to read people, developed over the years do you think you had a natural ability that's what drew your interest to magic and being a psychology major do you think both no i don't think so i, I think it grew over time because when i first got it i did i did become a psychology major because i was interested in magic so much it's what i wanted to do for uh -huh. my life that um i i figured okay well psychology that's the closest thing to what i do and, and, I, and a magician i looked up to at the time was also a psych major so I thought, well, he's successful. He's doing it. And if he's a psych major, that's what I'll do. And, you know, um, I, I think it developed, though, over time. Because when I was little, I performed very rarely. You know, I, I performed a lot in my room to myself. I would practice. and But I never really showed it to, to my peers. Like, seventh, eighth grade, I started doing it for kids. And even then, it was, like, very rarely. Because I was afraid they wouldn't appreciate it, you know, uh, the way that I did or, or, or that I would fail in front of them. And I was just, my hands would shake really bad and I'd get really nervous. Um, but, but once I started doing it, it was hard for me to stop because then all of a sudden, you know, socially it changed for me uh, around that eighth, 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 eighth grade, I think it was seventh or eighth grade into freshman year. I started performing more for my classmates and everything. And um, they started, you know, responding to me in a really positive way that just gave me a lot of confidence and I, and I kept going with it. And then, so over time, over the years, I eventually started slowly but surely, you know, building that ability to, to, to read people when you walk up to people because they're judging you like, you know, really quickly. They're going to be able, they're going to decide whether or not they want to watch what you're about to do. And I'm speaking, you know, specifically about like street magic, walk around, that kind of thing. Doing it on a stage is different. You still have to build, you know, a rapport with your audience. and You want them to trust you, you know, so that they so that they'll be willing to, you know, suspend their disbelief when I'm about to show them and things. But, um, yeah, I, I can't really put a put a finger on exactly what what it is yeah well it is fascinating and especially from my perspective being very interested in psychology and magic in general it is really interesting to hear your thoughts i want to wrap this up michael i don't want to take too much of your time but i feel like i have to ask this question if you're on the podcast very quickly before we get into what you've been up to because i know that you're doing magic your model you're doing a bunch of different stuff and i want to make right. sure we get out that out there but before we talk about that last question for you, what was the experience like for you on America's Got Talent? Because it was really unbelievable. Your video went viral. What was that whole experience like for you? It was amazing. You know, it was a it was a once in a lifetime type of opportunity. It gave me a lot of exposure. You know, I learned a lot about myself in those years. Um, it was a little jarring at first because you go from you know living your life a certain way to all of a sudden you know, you're getting recognized like in Starbucks and stuff. And, you know, the, the mothers want to take a picture with you for their daughter and that kind of thing. And you get a lot of messages and, and you have to have a good head on your shoulders when you have that type of exposure on a, on a show like that, you know, 
because if you don't, it can it can it can get you pretty quick and eat you up, you know, mentally. Um, because there's just so many people that that are trying to talk to you and things, and you have to you have to stay focused and you know how to leverage your brand and and that kind of thing. Because um, it can be easy, right? When you when you get that kind of exposure, going from you know a college kid, you know, small town guy who's trying to make it as a performer, and and um, all of a sudden now you're seen by millions. Uh, it can, it can be, it can be a lot, but, but it was a lot of fun, you know, and, um, the, the, the judges were great. The producers were all great and, and, and that kind of thing. And I had, I made a lot of friends on the show that I keep in touch with to this day, you know, a lot of lifelong memories that I'll always cherish, you know, that, that nobody can take away from me. And it's easy for people to say, you know, whatever people will about performers getting on those shows. Uh, but it's really easy to be, you know, a Monday morning quarterback, kind of thing where you, you know, you dissect, you sit behind a keyboard and you, it's easy to type up and say, Oh, he should have done this. Or why didn't he do this? And you know, why would he do it that way? You know, I heard all, I've heard from all these different magicians I know have said different things to me and you, the YouTube comments, you know, try not to get into reading too many of those, but um, they don't understand what, what it's, what it's like to be on a show like that. You have producers that, you know, know, you know, what makes good television and, and you have to listen to what they're saying and, you know, it's a lot of going back and forth and you, there's a very good possibility that you won't get aired if you don't, you know, listen to what they're telling you, uh, you know, because I beat out like I think over 10,000 just to even get to the celebrity audition wow. round and, and then you're not guaranteed to even air. So it, there's a lot of things that that have to go very right for you in order to, to even like what I did was get like a package on the show where, you know, you have a story and everything and they're focused on you. A lot of guys just get like, you know, that quick little blurb and then it's over and and in whatever. And, but it's really about, I think what you do with that exposure that matters, you know, like I said before, leveraging your brand, knowing what to do with that exposure is really important because if you don't, you know, the show will just air and you'll get that little flash in the pan of exposure and then it goes away and then they're on to the next thing. And that's okay. What do I do now with my, with this, you know? Um, I know some guys aren't a big fan of, of magic on America's got talent because they want to have more control over their, over their brand. And, and, and I understand that because they're, you know, you sign a contract. So there's a lot of things that you don't have say over when you're on that show. I couldn't choose the trick that I was going to do. I couldn't choose who I did it for. I could, you know, there's a lot of things that people assume it was my choice when they don't know how TV works. And it's really difficult to perform magic on TV because you're, you're dealing with, you know, the camera angles and where you stand and where everybody is and, and you know, all the rehearsals that you have to go over and, and what, what type of trick you're going to perform is up to the producers really. And, and, uh, you know, then the magic of editing and, and people don't see like what really went down in the theater. They, you know what I mean? But, uh, I'm probably going on a little bit of diatribe here, so I digress. <laughs> but, uh, it was a really, a really great experience. Uh, you know, but there's a saying in baseball where you're only as good as your last outing. So, uh, I, I lately, you know, I've been trying to stay focused on, on the present moment. And cause I, I, my mind often wanders back to, you know, that time and, you know, everybody thinks about the, about the past and, and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. Michael, you did mention the, the baseball. And I know that when you were younger, you were balancing baseball and magic. And I believe I saw an interview that you said you were scouted by the Mariners. And I know you're a big baseball guy. What was it like making the decision to go with magic over baseball? Because I know that was a decision for you back in the day. Yeah, it, it, it was a difficult decision. Um, so with the Mariners thing, I was pitching in a facility. It was like during the wintertime, and I was I was throwing one of my bullpens, 
uh, Doug Carroll's Baseball Academy was called in Framingham, Massachusetts. And my father was was a hitting instructor there, working under Doug Carroll. And uh, this this Mariner scout was in there one night, and uh, he watched my bullpen. So after he came up to me and he said, you know, hey, we're you you throw good. You're you know you got a good size. You're a lefty. You're what six four two something. You know you got good movement on your ball. This and that. And he said, well, you know, when are you going to Florida? And I told him, you know, when my team was headed there for spring training and everything and told him why I went to school and all that. And they eventually sent me a letter in the mail that was an uh, invitation only to uh, go to Arizona, I think, for a, for a, for a Mariners uh, tryout. And uh, I didn't end up going to it. And it was a, it was I guess at the time it, it wasn't actually that difficult of a decision because I was just I, w- I had to work so hard at baseball. And I'm not saying, you know, like. It's an excuse to be lazy or anything like that. But with magic, when I felt like I was living in my purpose with magic, it never really felt that difficult. You know, I had to work hard and I still have to work hard, you know. But at the same time, uh, success was pretty easy for me and, and, and I had so much fun. And I still have so much fun. But with baseball, I had to work so hard because I didn't throw strikes easily like a lot of other guys that I played with. You know, I always had a strong arm, but I had no idea where the hell the ball was going. You know, when I was younger, I used to throw, they, they call it getting under the ball. So when I, when I break out of my glove, instead of being down on top of the ball, I would kind of flip it over and kind of throw it like a pie and I'd lead with my shoulder and drag and it was really unhealthy and bad. But in retrospect, now I look back and think, well, you know, maybe that's why I threw so hard. I had so much torque because once I started breaking down my mechanics and trying to fix them so that I could throw strikes. And this is around the time I played with your brother and he caught for me. I started getting on top of the ball, learning how to kind of throw it like a punch and you use your, your hips and your legs and your core, you know, to, to like a um, weight distribution and energy, distrib- energy distribution. And I learned how to use my arm as a kind of a conduit of energy and use my legs and hip to kind of deliver that my arm through the ball that way. And, and I just lost a lot of velocity when I thought I would gain it you know, trying to throw quote unquote the correct way. I, I, my velocity dropped a lot and I went from throwing like 87, 88, you know, regularly as a lefty down to like, you know, the low eighties and high seventies. And, and, uh, but like I said, I struggled a lot because, because I had trouble throwing strikes. It was never that fun. Like baseball, it's supposed to be fun when you go out there and you walk a bunch of guys and you hit guys and give up home runs, you get taken out. And then the coaches lose faith in you and they want to play their kids over you. And it's all the politics to it and all that things. And I don't mean to sound jaded with baseball or anything, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of politics involved in college and in high school and that kind of thing. Um, I know when I was a sophomore, I played at Nipmuc High School and we won we won the state championship the year I was on the team for the first time I was a sophomore. So I was the only only player to make it on varsity other than my catcher, Logan, who made it, too. And uh, so I played one year at JV, pitched really well. And then I had the option my sophomore year to either go on to varsity or I could stay and play a lot on JV or I could go up on the varsity level. And the coach said, you won't play as much, but you'll learn what it's like to be on a team, you know, at the varsity level and how we run things up here and, and what it's all about. And it was a no brainer for me. I'm like, oh, I'm going to play with the, with the varsity players. I don't want to play on JV. Yeah, I'll play a bunch more, but it's JV. It's not the same. So I'm glad I made that decision because we won state that year, um, which was amazing. I pitched a little bit and that kind of thing. Uh, but then the coach left you know, the next season and he had plans with me and then he left the school and another coach came in with other ideas. And I don't know if you know how that goes, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I said, a lot of politics and in coaches are all about winning. Very rarely do you find a coach that cares about you personally and your, pro- your progression, you know, 
and working with you on a day to day and, and, and seeing how we can, you know, they just care about who can we put on right now on the field that's going to win me games because I need to win because that's my reputation on the line. I don't have time to work with a pitcher. And that's what I really needed. You know, I took a lot of pitching lessons and things, but it, it's different, you know, Robbie, when you're on the field and you're pitching in a game, you know, because then you have to learn about composure and, and, and how to, it's just different. It's just like performing magic. You can practice all you want, but magic happens in a person's mind, you know, so you have to be performing out in front of people in order to really build your chops and learn how to, and learn how to do it and be good at it. And it's the same thing with baseball. You can pitch a bullpen all the, as much as you want and you can throw every day, but if you're not pitching in games, it's really difficult to, to learn how to do it well. And when you only get little opportunities here and there, the pressure is on so much more about results, you know, because shit, I haven't pitched in weeks and this is my only opportunity. And I would get in my head and I'd get super nervous and my legs would shake and I had trouble throwing strikes. Whereas if I had a, a coach who, you know, could put me in and, uh, you know, two outs, bases loaded, like put me in a, in a tough situation, but like keep putting me out there so that I learn how to, how to be a good pitcher in those types of games, you know, so the decision uh, was pretty easy at the time to stop pitching because I wasn't having as much fun with it anymore. You know, it was so much pressure on results and, uh, and playing well. And when you're, when you're not throwing strikes, it's not fun, you know? And um, yeah, then it's like, you have to look at the lifestyle too. I thought I wanted to be a major league pitcher so, so badly. But then when I think now, when I look back on it and think about the lifestyle that that would have, that, that would have been, you know, a lot of traveling, you're never home often. You're not going to see your, your family as much, you know, unless they travel with you. So you're on a, you're on a plane all the time and you're on a bus all the time, but it's the same thing with performing. So you kind of have to, you know, look at what, what am I, what, what is the uh, sacrifice that I, that I, that I want to make, you know, what, what struggle am I, am I willing to live with or that I, you know, and, and being a performer is much like being a, being a, a baseball player. You know, it's kind of entertainment in a way, I'd say. But um, yeah, I, I think everything happens for a reason, you know. So in retrospect, it was it was a tough decision and it wasn't at the same time because I had more fun performing magic for people. But I have a lot of memories of baseball that I'll always, you know, remember and I, you know, think of fondly and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, always going with what you're passionate about, what makes you happy, I think is always a good call. Obviously, from someone who played baseball as well, the whole psychological aspect to that, and when things aren't going well, it's the worst sport in the world. So exactly. it's great when things are great, but it's the worst when things are not going well. And in terms of the coaching, I absolutely 100% agree, where oftentimes it's frustrating, I think, from my perspective. And you know, you're a psychology major, so you know that oftentimes the way coaches coach are not going to increase the performance. And so if they're, what they want to do is win, a lot of times the things they do won't result in the best performance from the kids because it just creates anxiety and worrying about messing up. And Yeah, yeah. Or if you get coaches who already have, you know, players that are good where they don't, they don't know, you know, they don't know how to work with, with a kid to make them more successful and, and that kind of thing. Right. So it's, 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 it's definitely a really, really uh, difficult thing, you know, and uh, to have fun with it. But it's interesting because that I chose, that I chose pitching because, there's so many similarities between pitchers and magicians, you know, like as a pitcher, you're on the mound and your, your, your job is to deceive the hitter, keep him off balance, right. With different pitches. So you have like, there are, which are illusions, really, you have your slider, huh, your curveball, your change up all to, to different speeds. They're right to keep the hitter off balance, try to get him out. It's the same with, same with magic. You have your different tricks that you perform to keep, you know, the audience, you know, off balance and keep them guessing. Right. And you're the, you you control it. You're right. You're the center of it. It's really interesting. Well, you gave a lot of interesting takes. I love the baseball and magic comparisons, especially the pitchers. That's a really interesting one. 
I wanted to wrap it up here. Is there anything else you want people to know about Michael? I, as I mentioned, you're doing a bunch of different things. People can go to themichaeljohn.com to check out whatever it is you're up to. They can follow you on Instagram and Twitter at themichael underscore John. Is there anything you want people to know about specifically? It's tough because a lot of the stuff that I'm working on is, is stuff that I can't talk about. Right. You know what I mean? If that makes sense, uh, stuff that's on the burner that I'm working on, but things that, you know, uh, contractually and, and through contracts and things I can't, I can't speak on um, too in depth. Uh, doing the modeling, um, which is uh, which is great, but at the same time, you know, it's it's a certain type of uh, lifestyle series of book covers coming out that'll be available everywhere. That I, you know, like those romance novel covers. So I did a few of those that'll be in Barnes and Noble and that kind of thing, um, available everywhere. And uh, other things that you if people will just see, you know, what I what I come out with. It's kind of the thing where like when I come out and do it, and you'll see me doing it. So yeah, one of the other things is that I'm about to go to a camp for the summer uh, with my family. It's a sleepaway camp called Camp Lindenmere, and that's where I'll be teaching magic to kids over the summer. So we'll be there from June to August, and I'll be I'll have classes, six classes a day, and I'll be teaching these young kids age 7 to 17 how to perform magic tricks. And then at the end of each three weeks, so it's split up into two segments of three weeks. So at the end of the first three weeks, the kids will perform a magic show for the parents who come back, and, and, and I'm, I'm in charge of all that. So I'll be I'll be running the classes. I have my curriculum created, you know, so uh, that's a really exciting thing that I have going for me. My family's coming with me um, to, to stay there for the summer. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I've, I've, uh, I've taught a little bit of magic before at a camp called Sorcerer Safari Summer Camp, but they, they, they ended up, um, you know, they, they're, they're, not a lot, they're not around anymore. The camp isn't around anymore, but I, I had a few summers that I, that I taught magic there. So I'm taking that experience into this, but now I have like much, a much bigger role where I'm the one, you know, running the whole thing. It's, it's, it'll be my, my solo thing. Um, so then after camp, we, we go from there back to the West coast, either Vegas or, or LA where we used to live and, uh, you know, take things from there. Now, Michael, I hear you have a card trick that we can do over the phone. Is that right? Right. So this is over the podcast. I just wanted to make this clear, Robbie. And so, so you'll agree with me. I'm not there, right, in in the studio with you. Correct? No. Correct. So where are you right now in the world? I am in Summerhill, Massachusetts, in my apartment. Okay, so I'm in New York, right? So so we agree on that, and I'm sure your viewers will, will trust you on that, that that's your, you have their word, or they have your word, that we're not together. There's, we didn't, you're not my, you know, conspirator. We didn't set this up ahead of time. This is, this is, you have no idea what I'm about to do other than that involves a deck of cards. Is that right? Oh yeah. My podcast listeners and I, the trust is there. So absolutely. (laughs) Okay, cool, cool. So I want you to take the deck, Robbie, and just shuffle it for me. Okay. And shuffle it as much as you want, any way that you want. And let me know when you're, I can hear them shuffling. So that's good. All right, it's all shuffled. Yeah, so as much as you want, let me know, and that's good. All set. So I want you to take the cards, Robbie, and in a minute, you're going to start uh, dealing them face down one at a time into a pile on the table. But before you do that, it's important just to know to do it quietly this time, you know, because I could hear the shuffling. So for this, when you deal the cards, just do it quietly so there's no way that I could ever hear, you know, over the phone, over this podcast, how many cards you're, you've dealt. Okay, so you can deal as many cards as you want, Robbie, as long as it's less than half the deck. Okay. Right? So go ahead and do that. Just deal as many cards face down into one pile quietly on the table as you want. 
and let me know when you're done with that. Okay. Great. So yeah, you're like a ninja. I didn't I didn't hear anything, and I'm sure your your viewers will agree. We didn't hear the cards as they were dealt. So I have no I have no idea what you've dealt. So when you're ready, go ahead and I want you to turn over the last card that you dealt. Just look at it and remember it real quick, and then return it face down to the top of that pile. Okay. Did that? Yes. Great. So you put the card back. So now I'm I'm gonna get a mental image here of this card. So, or I want you to rather. So what I'm going to do is in a second, I'm going to have you deal on top of that pile, the number of cards that corresponds to the value of the card you're thinking of. So if your card was like a, a jack, right, that would be 11. So you deal 11 cards. If your card was like a three, you deal three cards on top of it. If it was a nine, nine cards, right? So whatever the value of your card is, and jacks are 11, like I said, queens are 12 and kings are 13. Can you do that for me? Yes. Just right on top of that pile. And let me know when you're done with that. Again, quietly. Okay. And again, there's no way I could know, right? Nope. What's going on here? This is, I, I, there's no visual. I want you to pick up that pile that you've dealt and put it back on top of the deck that you've been dealing from. So you have the whole deck in your hand now. Okay. Great. So, again, I want to reiterate, this is your deck of cards. You had it laying around your apartment. I have no idea uh, what you've done. Does that make sense? Yes. Let's try this. I won't, In a minute, I'm going to have you start dealing the cards face up, one at a time. And you're going to read off each card. But I, but I don't want you to change the inflection of your voice at all, right? When you, When your card does come up. I want you just to keep reading as it, you know, just keep dealing them face up and, and read them one at a time. So start with the first card, just deal it face up on the table and, and say it out loud. Oh, before I do that, you know what, put that card back. I'm sorry, I put it back on top of the deck and I want you just to cut the deck. Give it one complete cut. Okay. All right, so that's shuffle the cards. So now there's really no way I could know. I don't want you to start again, dealing the cards face up one at a time onto the table and read them out loud as you deal them. Try not to change the inflection of your voice at all though throughout the card. So I don't know, I'll, I'll never know what card is yours. Just read them out loud as you deal. Three of hearts, ace of spades, king of diamonds, queen of spades, five of hearts, three of diamonds, ace of hearts, four of hearts, seven of diamonds, jack of diamonds, Three of spades, seven of hearts, six of spades, jack of spades, two of spades, two of diamonds, nine of diamonds, five of clubs, nine of spades, seven of clubs, two of hearts, ace of diamonds, four of clubs, jack of hearts, eight of hearts, jack of clubs, nine of hearts, ten of hearts, three of clubs, Queen of Hearts, King of Spades, Queen of, of Clubs, Queen of Diamonds, King of Hearts, Eight of Clubs, King of Clubs. Okay, so let me stop you here. You've uh, you've dealt the card you're thinking of already, haven't you? Yes. Okay. Think about your card. Don't say it, though, obviously. Yep. Um, you thinking about, was this a red card? Yes. 
I want you to picture it like on a blank movie screen. Really see it, Robbie. And this, like I said, again, we, there's a lot of distance between us right now. This was an ace, wasn't it? Crazy. You were thinking of the ace of diamonds? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> That's that's incredible. I yeah, <laughs> I I really don't understand that whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, that one. I was a little worried, and I don't know if that was gonna work. <laughs> you were dealing those real quietly. All right, cool. Obviously, everyone's just listening to this, so you we can't even see it. But from my perspective, I'm just putting cards down, and <laughs> it's just the fact that you came up with that one. I, I could not begin to understand how you did that. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> is there any sort of uh secret or any sort of hint or anything that would allow us to understand how you could possibly do something like that you want me to tell you how it's done <laughs> i don't know if you ever tell people your tricks but if you're willing to yes <laughs> uh it's, it's yeah it's hard to explain i mean what do you think I, I mean, I couldn't even begin to understand. I'm trying to think. Yeah, that was your deck, right? You shuffled it. There's no visual, so I couldn't see your cards at all. And you even cut your own deck, so you shuffled it even more in the beginning of it. Well, that's why after you told me to, to cut the deck, I wanted to make sure that I was doing it correctly in my head because I was thinking of how would you know. Oh, yeah, exactly. There's so many variables to this trick of the number of cards that I choose to do and... Yeah, it's all, it's all up to you. You have, a t you have a totally free choice of how many cards you deal. You have a free choice of what cards you, you think of and memorize. You never said it out loud, so there's no way. And then you shuffled the deck repeatedly, and then you deal. But you didn't change the inflection of your voice, right? And you were and you were dealing quietly. No, no. I specifically, if any sort of inflection was different, it might have been on a different card that wasn't even the card, just based on me getting tired or whatever. But... I guess for these types of tricks, and even if you don't want to tell how you do the trick, when there are so many variables like this, is there a certain formula to it? Or what can you tell the frustrated people at home that would think, how could this be possible? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, guess, I guess I'll say magic can be inherently disappointing. I'd say so you think you want to know how something's done right but but right. when you learn it oftentimes it's not as cool as, as that's why there's a reason why it's a secret I guess I'll say <laughs> right you, you don't usually find what you're looking for when you when you figure out how a trick's done it's it's better to not know I'd say well thanks so much for offering your trick Michael it's truly incredible for people who are just listening to it I don't know how you did it. And everyone should check out all of your stuff on YouTube and, as I said, on your website. Yeah, I'm booking now, and, and you can keep those cards, too, uh, <laughs> as a souvenir. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, again, thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me, Robbie. Again, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Michael John for joining the podcast. It was really interesting to talk to him just about his career in magic and how he got into the industry. It was really a unique conversation and one that – I don't think it's a typical interview, so I was really happy he could come on and just talk about his experience so far in his career. But I did want to transition to end the podcast by discussing a bunch of different topics from over the weekend in sports in particular, because it really has been a crazy few days. First of all, we have to start with David Ortiz, and I will get to the Bruins when I want to talk about the Red Sox briefly, but we have to talk about David Ortiz, because that really was the news over the weekend over the last few days. Now... During the big 
Game 6 Bruins on Sunday night. During around the second period, I believe, news came out on Twitter that David Ortiz was shot in the leg. And first of all, in terms of my reaction, it was hard to believe. I think it took everyone a little bit longer to figure out if this was a real thing on Twitter because it was coming from sources that we were not familiar with. The first thing you had to figure out is, was it legitimate? And once you figured out it was legitimate, you had to think about how serious is this? Obviously, you see a gunshot, and your first reaction is, I hope Poppy's okay. But it didn't sound that serious. Although it was horrible to receive this news early on, it wasn't, at least for me, as much of a reaction of fear for his life as, oh my god, that's horrible that it happened. But then, as news came out, and it became verified what actually happened, it became a lot scarier. And we learned that it wasn't a robbery, but most likely someone trying to murder Poppy. And that he wasn't wounded and shot in the leg, but more through the back and through his abdomen. And they rushed him to the hospital. There's a quote about him talking to the person who was helping him that he doesn't want to die. He's a good person. And it was absolutely tragic. I couldn't go to sleep that night just hearing the news, trying to figure out if it, he's going to be okay. And it did seem like towards the end of that Sunday night that he was going to be better. Then on Monday night, I'm recording this on a Tuesday, Monday night, we learned that they transported him to Boston by plane and that he is stable and they had to remove some organs and fix. He had liver issues and all of that. And it's just horrific to hear, really sad, but it does seem like he's going to make a recovery. Obviously very serious still, but the fact that he's in Boston and we're going to hear more from ideally David Ortiz or David Ortiz's camp this morning. As I said, I'm recording this on Tuesday, so it might come out later today, but it does seem like Poppy is doing better and just the reaction on social media really speaks to how much of a special guy this guy was and still is, was when he was playing baseball, but still is the person helping out with the community. As we know, he's on Fox as an analyst. He also seems to be very prevalent in the Red Sox organization still. And the guy's a hero around here. He, if he ran for mayor, he would have a lot of votes. And it just speaks to how much people appreciate him here how much people appreciate him just around the country, around the world. He's thought of as really the president of the Dominican Republic. He's probably the most recognizable, most famous person in the DR. And it really isn't that much different here. People just love the guy. There have been all those videos about how he's helped kids, one kid with cancer in particular, moving stuff. And we hope he does better. The outreach from everyone on social media has been awesome. It's just expressing their support for Poppy. He's the greatest guy, and it shows by just the amount of outreach and support he's received in the past couple of days since people heard about the news. I want to transition to the Red Sox a little bit, then end by discussing the Bruins in the NBA Finals. But first of all, with the Red Sox, another blown save last night. What a surprise, right? I believe it was Matt Barnes. I didn't see the game. But again, bullpen issues persist. They need to get another bullpen arm, and they need to figure it out. So whether that means Dombrowski trading for someone at the trade deadline, we're going to have to see. I think that they're going to try to make some moves. They're not going to let these issues continue at a certain point because the bullpen right now is not good enough for them to win at all, that's for sure. Hopefully, they can figure out to get to the playoffs. Right now, they're not winning with this bullpen. I'm 100% certain about that. But over the weekend, David Price had another great start, and he's 4-2. With a 2.70 ERA, putting up Chris Sale-like numbers when Sale in his first couple of seasons, and Sale's been awesome recently, but his ERA is more in the threes this year because of off to his bad start. But David Price has been absolutely phenomenal this year. Their best pitcher, he's going to be an all-star. 
He was phenomenal last year. He was phenomenal last year in the playoffs. In his tenure with Boston now, he's compiled a record of something like 43-21 and 21 with a 3-5 ERA. And those numbers include his rough start to begin his first season with the Sox. And even that bad year, I think he had around 17 wins and he had an ERA just under 4. So his tenure with the Boston has been really good. And he's turned it around like very few athletes have in Boston in terms of perception, in terms of performance, you got to give this guy a lot of credit because he could have easily thrown in the towel and just got upset by how the media and the fans are treating him, and he did, and he didn't handle it well, which is, again, why people got on him more than other athletes typically if you don't handle it well, and he had this thing with Eck, and he's been tough with the media, but give this guy a lot of credit. He's bounced back after... I don't even want to say a tough first year, but an inconsistent first year where the expectations were really high and he didn't meet them, like Kyrie Irving and the Celtics this past year. But he was able to bounce back. And I said this before, and I know Gasper talked about Felger and Maz, but this is just a lesson to Boston athletes and Boston fans that you can have redemption in this city. It happened with John Lackey. It's happening right now with David Price. And if Kyrie Irving stays this year, it could happen with Kyrie Irving. So never count an athlete out in Boston, even if we hate you right now, even if the fan base hates you, if you perform, then we will love you. And David Price is a prime example of that. We are all on the Price bandwagon right now. He's having one of the better seasons of his career. And it's really unbelievable how he's been able to turn around. It really shows just the mental side of sports and baseball because it's really all confidence because his stuff is not necessarily better right now than it was a few years ago. And Obviously, it's about location, but I think a lot of it with Price is confidence, and we've seen that, and he's really become the stopper for this team. So although the bullpen issues persist, Sales pitching a ton better. He had an amazing start the other day. Price has been consistent all year. If they somehow figure out the bullpen, this team should be okay. But again, bullpen issues are real, and they're going to need to figure that out. The Bruins, as I'll wrap this up with the NBA Finals and Kevin Durant talk, but the Bruins, big win on Sunday night. Game 7 tomorrow night, Wednesday night. As I said, I'm recording this on a Tuesday, so Game 7 for me is tomorrow night. And what more can you want? Game 7, Stanley Cup Finals. The Bruins came ready to go in Game 6. And it's going to be a back-and-forth battle. Again, I'm no hockey expert for this a million times, and I want to preface that whenever I talk about the team. I am a bandwagon fan. But Tuca has been playing lights out. From everyone I've heard, people expect the same type of performance. Him in big moments and big pressure situations, his numbers are unbelievable. So you expect to get a big performance by Tuca. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with penalties and the power plays because, as we all know, as everyone's talked about, the Bruins have been great in their special teams when they've had an extra man, and that's really they've scored a lot of their goals. So that will be really one thing to look for in Game 7. I'm looking forward to it. It should be a nerve-wracking game. And hopefully we get the 3 P and get the parade over the weekend. But to wrap this up, I need to talk about the NBA Finals. I have not watched much of the series, but I need to give a reaction to Kevin Durant's injury last night. The Durant thing is an interesting one because Durant was a likable guy before he went to the Warriors, right? He was the best player in the league, if not the second best player in the league, to LeBron James. He was very likable, kind of a quiet guy, confident guy, but very likable. And what really changed the perception for KD was when he went to the Warriors. And myself included, it's a tough look to go to a team where you almost beat them the season before, and then you join this super team who was one of the best teams, if not the best team of all time. And he's one of the best players, if not the best player in the league, 
He joins one of the best teams of all time just to get a championship. He gets that championship, and it's a tough look. And I have been a very anti-Kevin Durant guy since he made that move because where's the competitive fire? It's easy to move to the best team in the league and get your championship, and it almost seems like it's kind of cheap. And how he's acted with the media hasn't helped him either. And it's almost the case of David Price, where people backlash against him, he gets angry, backlashes against the media, and these things persist. And the hatred for Durant among fans and among myself grew. And hatred's probably too strong of a word, but the dislike and the frustration with him grew. And people called him soft for leaving, myself included. But last night, I think he changed a lot of perceptions in fans' minds, in myself in particular. And I'm not going to say the injury last night to Durant is any sort of positive for his career because it's horrific. From what I saw, it looked like he tore his Achilles. And I have a pretty good analysis on that because I tore my Achilles about four months ago and the moment I saw it that's what I thought was Achilles I didn't want to see the replay I don't want to relive that for myself it's been a horrific injury to come back from it's probably the worst injury to come back from you know if not up there with the worst for me it's been a grind every single day and it's, if it is in fact an Achilles tear and we'll learn later this afternoon as I said it's a Tuesday I'm doing this on a Tuesday morning but if it is in fact an Achilles tear which is what I think it is Everyone knows that's a year out for the season. It's going to take a little bit more time to recover back from that. It's brutal. And the reason why I say the perception changed for me and a lot of other people last night is there's this perception that Durant was soft and that he didn't care that much. He was going to win for the championship. And last night really showed that he wasn't ready to come back. He shouldn't have come back. People say there's pressure from the Warriors, from the players, from the media. I don't know who's to blame. Who knows? All I know is this guy wasn't ready to come back. He still had a bad injury, what was the calf injury, and he tore his Achilles because of it. Or at least, most likely tore his Achilles, or if not a tear, a very bad Achilles strain. And to me, that shows me two things. One, this guy is tough. He's not some soft guy who needs to join the best team in the league. And number two, he really does care about his teammates and cares about winning, and it's not about free agency for him. Because... He's supposed to be a free agent this year, and that just affected his career. That affected the amount of money he's going to make, and that's a real thing. And so my respect just went through the roof for Kevin Durant last night. I'm not saying this injury last night was a positive for him anyway, because it's horrific. He may never be the same guy again. He probably will be, but there's no guarantee. Again, as someone who's suffering this right now, who's trying to rehab, it's horrible. I don't want to say this is a positive at all. However... In terms of perception, of how perception changed about this guy, last night it did a total 180 for me and I think most of the fans in the media. Number one, we're more sympathetic towards him. But secondly, we understand now that this guy really does care. He played for his teammates. He didn't have to play last night, and he did. So props to Kevin Durant, and I really hope for him to have a speedy recovery because, again, as someone who's going through right now, it's horrible, and I cannot imagine being an NBA player trying to go into free agency and having the battle with rehab and getting back to an elite level because as I said it's the worst injury imaginable and it's going to be a daily grind for him if it is in fact Achilles tear for the next year. If you enjoyed this podcast please make sure to check out my other episodes on the Wicked Local North of Boston website or on my social media accounts. You can all follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robin. You can check for the latest podcast information. Thanks so much for listening.